kind of a well-known tradition on Easter Sunday to say Christ has risen. And does anybody know the response? Christ, Christ has risen indeed. Yes, indeed our Savior is risen. Well, today as we reflect on the resurrection of Christ, we want to launch into a new study. We want to launch into the book of Colossians. In part, we want to look at this book that Paul, this letter that Paul wrote to an early, a young church, because it is including some of the grandest and most beautiful language for Christ that we have in all the New Testament. He spends an extensive amount of time talking about the majesty, the beauty, and the work of our Lord. And so today we're going to reflect on it. We're actually also going to go through the entire Bible. You heard me right. We're going through the entire Bible. Uh, we are going to start in Genesis and work our way all the way through Revelation because we believe that the Bible is one unified story pointing to Christ. And so we're going to start in Genesis and work our way all the way to Revelation. A couple things you should know before we jump into this letter. Uh, first, as I mentioned, this is a letter written to a young, young church. Um, Many scholars think it's within the first couple years of their existence, and Paul is not the person who started it, but he is writing as a mentor to this young church, and he's actually writing from Roman prison. The whole theme of this letter is that Christ has begun a new kingdom, that he has begun a new humanity in his work, and he is inviting us all into that work. And then the practical element of it is that transformation. Learning to live in this kingdom invades every aspect of life. I think it's C.S. Lewis that says there, there isn't a single aspect of our life that Christ doesn't lay claim to. That everything falls under the reign and the rule of Jesus. And so today we reflect on that. Today we reflect on how Christ is at the center of God's redemption story. Speaking of stories, um, does anybody remember the 2000s? Does anybody remember uh, the early days of uh, this millennia? Um, maybe you have a similar experience to me if you're reaching close to 30. Um, does anybody remember Extreme Home Makeover? And who wants to be a millionaire? And American Idol, these stories, these cultural moments. And I don't know about you, but do you remember like going to work or to school the next day? And like that was the talk. Like the thing you watched on TV was the thing everybody was talking about. I think it was 2005, Extreme Home Makeover. Ty Pennington and the whole gang came to Kansas City. And that was what we talked about for like a week was like... They're working on the house right now. And there's like daily check-ins. Like, I think they poured the foundation. Like as a third grader, I'm talking about the foundation that's being poured at this, you know, random site in Kansas City. We had these moments of shared stories in the age of broadcast. 
Now, fast forward to today, I'm sure you have this same experience where you're sitting with a friend, you're talking to a coworker, and you say, did you see this show? And you just get a, nah, never even heard of it. We have this moment where you just launch into, oh, I saw this show and this thing happened, and they're like, yeah, never heard of it. I have Hulu. It doesn't, like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. We've had this moment where we went from, we all had these shared stories, these moments where we could gather around the water cooler or the locker or recess and talk about what was going on. And now we have a little bit of this fracturing in which I have my shows, you have your shows, you have your stories, I have my stories. And in some ways, there's this fracturing. Fun fact, there's something called broadcast television, which we're all familiar with, but there's kind of a new terminology coming about called narrowcasting. And the whole idea behind narrowcasting is instead of trying to appeal to a broad audience, um, producers and creators cater to a very specific subset of the culture. In many ways, this is a very beneficial thing because minority voices, voices that have been on the margins for a long time, finally get representation. But the unforeseen maybe moment of this is that we no longer have shared stories. A uh, kind of commentator on this phenomenon said, we are no longer in the era of broadcast. We are in the era of narrowcast where different genres are made for different people. Nothing caters to everyone. We've moved from broadcast to narrowcast. And in doing so, I think we are losing some of the stories that connect us. Now, I'm not saying this is all bad, nor do I blame broad, the death of broadcast television for all of our problems. But I do think there's something significant about us not sharing some of the same narratives. That there's something significant about sitting across from someone and just your stories missing each other altogether. Television isn't going to solve this. Streaming services appealing to a broader audience isn't going to solve this. But I think it's worth reflecting on the loss of shared stories. Because aren't stories one of the basic elements of being human? Like if you think about prehistoric humans, you think of a family gathered around a fire hearing from an elder. These are our stories. And these stories shape our lives. They shape our emotions. They shape our dreams. They shape where we're going. We need more shared stories. And in the fracturing of our stories, we're experiencing just moments of tension and callousness. David Brooks for the New York Times wrote in The Collapse of Truth, he said, the collapse of truth, the rise of animosity, these are emotional, not intellectual problems. The real problem is in our system of producing shared stories. If a country can't tell narratives in which everyone finds an honorable place, then righteous rage will drive people towards tribal narratives. And that tears us apart. We find ourselves in a moment in which our stories are fracturing, diverging, and competing. 
In a similar way, the story of the gospel has been fractured. There are diverging or even competing stories of who Jesus is. And it is in this letter that Paul is attempting to bring those diverging stories to a head. He is trying to say, no, 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 here is the story of Jesus. And to do so, Paul uses a poem set in the very middle of his first chapter to say, this is who our risen Savior is. He places it in the middle of his introduction to encourage the Colossian church and consequently all who follow in their footsteps towards a life in Jesus' kingdom. This language, again, is the most lofty and beautiful in all the New Testament. Paul draws on his extensive knowledge of the Hebrew Testament, what we call the Old Testament, to describe Jesus in language that was only previously applied to God the Father. And this poem is split into two distinct stanzas. And if you have a written or a paper Bible, I almost said a written Bible, you should have a written Bible. If you have a paper Bible or you're looking at it on your phone, it's unlikely that this text actually looks like a poem. It kind of just looks like everything else. But let me tell you, it is a poem that has parallelism and an artistic flair. Paul is using this to describe creation and new creation, to describe the whole of God's story arc in human history. The story of redemption in Christ is divided into four pieces. So we're going to just go from Genesis to Revelation, reflecting on the story in four different scenes. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and new creation. And as I said in the words of Tim Mackey, from page one to the final word, we believe that the Bible is a story that leads to Jesus. And so from page one, Paul is pointing out Jesus is there, Jesus is present. So scene one, creation and the image of God. If you've got um, your Bible with you, turn literally to page one. We're going to start there. For in Genesis 1 and 2, we are given the incredible story of how all of reality came into existence. In Genesis 1 and 2, we are told that our boundless God looked over pre-creation. He saw the raw materials of what existed, and he began to order the things and pull them into being. From disorder, he created order. From the lifeless void, he brought about life. From the dust, he created humanity. And in Paul's first stanza, verses 15 through 17, Paul explores how Jesus is the full image of this creator God that we see on page one. This is what Paul says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
The whole character and purpose of God exists and comes from the person of Jesus. Paul's understanding of God in creation is mimicked and said multiple times throughout the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Christ, who is the image of God. Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who shared in the nature of God. Hebrews 1, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. To sum all of this up, I love the words of Brian Zahn. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time in which God was not like Jesus. We've not always known that God was like Jesus, but now we do. Any image that divorces Christ from his father are incomplete images of God. That even on page one, Christ steps into creation and he is the word that God creates through Jesus, by Jesus, with Jesus. But as we know, the paradise described in the first two chapters of Genesis doesn't last too long. And it isn't even how our experience is. The paradise of Eden isn't what we know in creation. Rather, we are more familiar with what happens in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate and gave some to her husband. The tempter in the shape of a snake said to the first humans, did God actually say the first sin, the first rebellion, and every sin since then has been a redefinition of good and evil on our own terms. Believing the lie that you can be like God. And the consequences of believing that lie ripple through time, producing evil, suffering, and ultimately death. There is a fracturing of relationships based around the denial of who God created us to be. That he created us as image bearers, but we settled for something less than. That we decided to make ourselves in our own image. And the fracturing of relationships ripples even through now. There are five fractured relationships based on Genesis 3 that we see rippling throughout the Old Testament. 
The first is the fracturing of humanity's relationship with God. Humans have put a relational distance between ourselves and God. The bonds of trust and relationship between God and humanity were broken, leading the humans away from the garden and away from their God. Second, the contamination of the earth. The very good ground itself, called good just a chapter before, suffers because of our pitiful rebellion. In chapter three, God laments the impacts of sin on his good creation. He says this, curses the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field, but only by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Creation itself is not evil, but it has been corrupted by its human caretakers. And the curse we find in Genesis 3 is not God saying, this is me actively cursing you. It is God lamenting humanity's choice to move away from relationship with you. The third fractured relationship is our relationship with one another. In Genesis 4, we're told of two brothers, Cain and Abel, and in Cain's jealousy, he struck down and murdered his brother. And this is a crime we can't seem to break free of. That if we look across the globe, as we look across our world, brother murdering brother, sister murdering sister, humanity's relationship with one another has been fractured. And violence continues to reign in our relationships. In Genesis 11, we discover that sin corrupts our institutions. We're told this odd story about humans attempting to build an alternative society called Babylon, or more commonly called the Tower of Babel. Let me read you just a brief excerpt from Genesis 11. The Babylonians said amongst themselves, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. It is an attempt to rival God. The first Babylonian empire was humankind's attempt to become like God by coercive unity. You'll notice in there as you continue to read that they were mainly concerned with language and God scattering them across the globe. Instead of valuing the, diver the diversity of humanity, they attempted unification under a single banner. As Lisa Shannon Harper in her book, The Very Good Gospel says, the Babylonian empire made use of a single trade language and a commitment to erecting tall buildings and monuments, and doing so used oppression and exploitation of slave labor to do so. The, the sin of the Babylonians was in their hubris to be like God. They had no concern for their fellow man. They had no concern for those around them, and through it created institutions and organizations in which sin lives and reigns. Diversity and faith in God were replaced with homogeny and the policies of Babylon first. 
It was the first instance of systematic and social injustice. And though God thwarted the Babylonian attempt at world domination, every human government since then, every institution since then, has been on a similar trajectory of evil. We can't seem to rid ourselves of our desire to be like God. The final result of our rebellion was that we were made for everlasting life, but we settled for death. Genesis 3.19, for out of the dust you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Or as the Apostle Paul lamented in Romans 3, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of this sin is death. We were made for everlasting life, but we have settled for death. And since that first insurrection so many years ago, all of creation and all of human history has lived under our pitiful reign of sin. That first sin in the garden and every sin since then has put us on a trajectory for death. From Genesis 3 to Malachi 4, the scriptures recount and repeat the same story over and over and over. It's different names, changed details, but much of the Old Testament is recounting the deeds of the Israelite people and their yearning for a savior. The question is, where is Jesus? Where is God in the midst of human suffering? Where is he in the midst of our rebellion, enter Matthew 1, where we find Jesus in the midst of a scandalous pregnancy to an unwed teenager. We find Jesus fleeing from home as a dictator commits infanticide. We find Jesus as a blue-collar worker in a rural town called Nazareth. We find Jesus amongst the poor, the oppressed Israelites saying, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the heartbroken, blessed are the powerless. We find Jesus abandoned and betrayed by his closest friends. We find Jesus being beat by the religious elite for challenging their claims to power. We find Jesus hanging on a cross between two thieves, the victim of a state execution. The God of Scripture is not aloof, He is not calloused who are suffering. In Jesus, we see what God is really like. In Jesus, we see a God who is unwilling to stay remote. In Jesus, we see a God who is unwilling to stay distant. In Jesus, we see a God who's willing to enter the story of humanity. Not to reign through domination, but to show us the way through suffering. In Jesus, we discover a God who refuses to leave our world in a state of sin and death. Intercene three, redemption and the story of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus endured the worst thing that can happen to a human person, which is death. This is the one thing we cannot help but fear. So much of our lives, so much of our time, so much of our money goes to the reality of avoiding thinking about, talking about, or reflecting on our own mortality. 
Think about how much time we just commit to avoiding this. But on a hill outside of Jerusalem, Jesus took on death. He picked a fight with our worst enemy, and he defeated it. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Or as the author of Hebrew puts it, by Jesus' death, the power of death has been broken. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus himself preaches his own Easter service. And the li- as the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In verse 18 of our poem, Paul anchors everything that he has claimed. He anchors the reality of Jesus as God in the claim that he is God because he has conquered death. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be first. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We are not gathered here today because a Jewish Messiah was executed 2,000 years ago. Jesus was not the first so-called Jewish Messiah to be executed. Jesus actually stands in a long line of Jewish Messiahs to be executed. And I say Messiahs in quotations because there were many that came before Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. And just as everyone before, Jesus is taken up on a Roman cross, dying a brutal death. But the difference between Jesus and, say, someone like Judas the Hammer, who was a Jewish Messiah just about 100 years before Jesus, is that Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm going to die, but in three days I'll be back again. The reason why we're still talking about Jesus is because 2,000 years ago, a guy said, hey, I'm going to die, and about three days later, I'm going to be up and walking again. If someone else can pull off this trick, one, it is the best party trick of all time, but two, I am going to listen intently to what they have to say. If there is anyone else in human history that can make the claims that Jesus makes, we should listen to them. But the facts are that Jesus is the only one who entered death and three days later is walking around, interacting with his disciples and saying, I have made a way by the blood of my cross. And let me show you what resurrection is like. Now, if you're someone who has trouble wrapping your head around an ancient story about a guy who said, I'm going to die and rose three days later. I do not blame you. I'm a little bit of a natural skeptic myself. But in reading um, N.T.'s Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, I want to offer maybe just four things to dwell on and to think through as you think about Jesus's bodily resurrection. These are four um, just historical realities that we can anchor ourselves to as we read through the resurrection account. Firstly, that the tombs of martyrs were quickly enshrined 
and there is no evidence of Jesus's tomb being memorialized. As I mentioned, Jesus is in the long line of Jewish messiahs. And upon a Jewish messiah's death, typically it becomes a shrine to that leader's movement. If Jesus had died and stayed in that tomb, we would have archaeological evidence of that is where he died. Even if 12 disciples went, no, 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 he's alive. He had too many other followers who would have enshrined this monument or this grave as a monument. Second, there is a lack of Old Testament references in the resurrection accounts, in part because no one anticipated the resurrection. Now, I know that seems like a weird defense for it, but if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are saturated with allusions, echoes, and parallels to the Old Testament. That at almost every page and every moment, Jesus's life, his ministry, his miracles are anchored in something that came before. The resurrection accounts are surprisingly absent of these things. In part, it's because no one anticipated this. This was as like out of left field as it can possibly be. But if someone was attempting to manufacture an account, it would make far more sense to try and anchor it to the Old Testament. Three, the disciples' radical change in Sabbath day observance, transitioning from Saturday to Sunday, has no logical explanation unless they witness something they cannot account for. In um, early Judaism, observing the Sabbath on Saturday was a big deal. If you read through the accounts of Jesus, his activities on the Sabbath were a major source of um, news and uh, temptation for the Pharisees to jump on him. Like What he does on the Sabbath is a big source of conflict in his life. And so for those ancient Jews... One day to just pick up and go, you know what, let's change it from Saturday to Sunday, was so scandalous that there had to be something that entirely changed how they processed their time and their week. And it's part, in part, we look to the narrative of the resurrection and we go, ah, I get it. And finally, the disciples' willingness to be martyred in increasingly horrific ways continues to suggest that they witnessed something they were willing to die for. It's one thing for one madman or mad woman to have an idea and to be willing to die for it, to convince 11 others to die in increasingly horrific ways is something else altogether. That the witness of the first disciples is that they witnessed something so miraculous, so incredible, that they were willing to go to death to keep saying, Christ has risen. On that first Easter Sunday, Jesus began a revolution of resurrection. Death will no longer have the final word. For those first disciples and for all who have followed, death has been defeated. 
or as Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this poem says, he, Jesus, was the supreme in the beginning, and he is leading the resurrection parade. He is the supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everyone and everything. That at the center of God's plan of redemption is Jesus. Enter scene four, new creation, a prototype for the people of God. Paul goes on in verse 21 to say this. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from hope in the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation and under heaven. The beauty of the Jesus story is that all are welcomed. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has beckoned you to his side. He has beckoned you to be a part of a new story. He is the head of a new people, a multi-ethnic community of God, a new kingdom, a new nation, and in you, in us, the broken, the petty, the anxious, the imperfect, the addicted, the sad, the suffering, the dangerous, the uncomfortable, the awkward, in us, the story of Jesus is being retold over and over again. And the beauty is that Jesus' story isn't over. It is being lived out day after day in the lives of his faithful. And to be numbered amongst the Jesus people, to be numbered amongst them, is to play a part in the renewal of all things. As I mentioned in the beginning, there were five fractured relationships. Our relationship with God, Jesus has taken care of. Our relationship with others, our relationship with the world, our relationship with institution, our relationship with death. Jesus is inviting us to rethink all of those things and to enact and be the new people of God. As John says in Revelation 21, I told you we were going to get to the very end. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our rebellion has been washed over. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Worship team, if you would join me. Behold, I am making all things new. Echoes as we close the scriptures. It becomes our new mandate as the people of God. We look at a promise like that. We look at the promise of a future and we work towards that future in all that we can, in all that we do. An author I thoroughly enjoy reading named Isama Macaulay wrote this about what Good Friday and Easter mean for black Americans. He writes, it's common, even in Christian circles, to think of the afterlife as a disembodied bliss in a paradise filled with naked angel babies tickling the strings of harps as our souls bounce from cloud to cloud. But Christianity has never taught a disembodied future in heaven. Our beliefs are far more radical. We believe that one day, the entire created world will be transformed to become what God always intended it to be. Free of pain, death, and sorrow, it will be an earth that still contains some of these things of this life, food, art, mountains, lakes, beaches, and culture. There will be hip-hop, spiritual, soul music, and grits, I'm not a fan of grits, but, you know, it is what it is. Christians believe that our bodies will be resurrected from the dead to live in this transformed earth. Like the earth itself, these bodies will be transfigured or perfected, but they will still be our bodies. The promise of Easter is that our God defeated death and he is soon going to defeat it for us all. The promise of Easter that Jesus made a way for all that would be called by his name. That we are not just bystanders in the story of God, but we are being invited into the process of new creation. For those of us who already consider ourselves a part of the story of God, our encouragement today, my encouragement as we reflect on the story of Jesus is be reminded where you sit. Be reminded of your scene in the story. That every act of kindness, every word to a stranger, every moment where you dig a little deeper in your pocket, to be a little more generous. These are acts of new creation, a creation in which greed, anger, dismissiveness, and pettiness are no longer the norm, but the norm is generosity, joy, kindness, love. We are being invited into the process of new creation to bring about the future of God here and now. Our little acts of kindness won't make it happen any quicker. Our God is in charge of that, but we sure can show a lot of people what resurrected life looks like. For those of us who have not necessarily joined 
the resurrection story yet. May today be your invitation. May today be an invitation to hear the story of Jesus, to hear the story of redemption. to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.